If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. How would you like to ramp up your club's game day atmosphere? Big Screen Video is giving 10 lucky sports clubs the chance to win a $10,000 grant towards their own digital scoreboard. Register now at iCanWin.com.au slash BSV. On 882 6PR, inspiring stories for Barra and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments, because the little things are everything. Hello, my name is Tim McMillan. Welcome to another episode of Inspiring Stories, brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments, because the little things are everything. My guest uh, in this episode uh, is a quadriplegic who now works as a disability advocate. And fair to say his life took a fairly dramatic turn. That is the understatement of the century uh, when he was 22 uh, and serving in the army. Uh, I'll let our guest explain what happened then and uh, we'll take it from there. So at this point, I'll just say a very warm welcome to Ben Aldridge. G'day, Ben. G'day, Tim. Thanks for having me on, mate. It's an absolute pleasure. Look, I don't want to steal your thunder because, uh, you know, life as a 22-year-old was going in one direction for you and then suddenly uh, you change gears in a fairly dramatic fashion. Tell us what uh, Ben Aldridge was doing as a 22-year-old. At the age of 22, I was uh, serving in the infantry um, as part of the Australian Defence Force over in Townsville there. Yep. Um, in uh, the mighty 2nd Battalion, 2nd to none. But, uh, (laughs) look, you know, and it was a great job for a young man. I mean, personally, I always worked physically with my body and was very much focused upon the physical aspects of life. And so joining the military really gave me a a great way of getting a bit of discipline and getting a bit of direction in my life, which I'd definitely Mm. been lacking. Mm. You know, so, um, yeah, I found it quite enjoyable and quite uh, quite fun. But, yeah, 2004 or seven, that all kind of went a bit pear-shaped. Yes. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I, I, I was serving overseas um, in East Timor there as uh, part of Operation Astute. Uh, the Timorese government, they asked for our help to uh, help with an attempted coup or rebellion over there. So, yep. you know, we went on over and... Um, yeah, things were things were definitely a bit hectic, and when I got back, I was suffering quite badly from post-traumatic stress, which, um, yeah, was really an interesting sort of turning point in my life. Yeah. Um, having this having this mental health uh, issue because yeah. at this point, I'd never really had much in the way of mental health issues, um, and. To suddenly have this, I, I didn't know how to deal with it. I didn't know what to do. Um, so I took a cue from what is unfortunately an Aussie norm, which is try and drink your troubles yeah, away. Just drown it. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Try and drown my sorrows and drown drown myself in it. Try and find some peace, yeah. um, peace and quiet. Mm. You know, and the alcohol was um, helping me get to sleep and helping me 
sort of uh, dull life's edges and to dull the uh, the automatic reactions of post-traumatic stress. Yeah. Were you a, a bit of a, a drinker before that, Ben, uh, you know, in any kind yeah. of problematic way or was it, uh, it it was just something you turned to in a big way uh, after this um, you know episode of, of PTSD? Yeah, I suppose I'd, I'd always been a bit of a binge drinker. Um, mm. Before I joined the military, I worked as an offsite on, on an exploration drill rig. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's a hard crowd. Yeah. That is a really hard crowd. And so, yeah, I, I did have my own experiences of binge drinking before that, but it definitely accelerated quite hard after my return from Timor. Because, yeah. I mean, the symptoms of PTSD, um, the hyper-awareness, the nightmares, the... Um, the stress, the anxiety, these things, they all conspire to make it really hard to live life. Yeah. Um, Or make it hard to function effectively would probably be a better way of putting it. Yeah. If you don't mind me asking, Ben, what was it in East Timor? Was it a particular experience or just a collection of experiences there that set you on that path? What was troubling you? Look, it was a collection of experiences. Um, it was my first sort of service overseas, East Timor. Yeah. And it was very stressful in as far as we didn't quite know who the who the enemy were. Mm. Um, you know, this half of the military had, had rebelled against the corruption in the military and oh, – corruption in the government, sorry. And um, they could just take their uniform off at any time. Uh, so between that and having to deal with the actual uh, economy and the way and the lifestyle of people who live over there and the refugee camps and young children, um, you know, it's it's a really hard place to look at. And especially, uh, yeah, I mean, for me, my little sister, she was um, quite young at the time and um, sort of looking at the looking at the difference of, of life between the two was it was hard. It was hard to take. Yeah. How long were you over there for, Ben? Uh, five and a half months all up. Yeah, right. So, and in that five and a half months, you spend the entire time on edge because yeah. you're constantly having to worry about keeping your mates safe. Mm. At, at the end of the day, you you don't mind if you get injured as long as your mates don't. Mm. You know, so you're always looking out for each other. There's just this constant vigilance that you're always under. So when you get back, it's really, really hard to switch it off. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and it's really hard to admit that you have an issue. You know, in Australia, we've got this stigma that um, in order to be respected, you need to be independent. You need to deal with your own shit. You need to be strong. You need to, you know, you need to be an absolute pillar of strength and admit no weakness. Yeah. Um, which, quite honestly, is bollocks. Yeah. When you're um, when you're in that world, you know that five and a half month stint where you were in in, in Timor and on edge, as you say, uh, were you aware at the time that you were, I suppose, in in some kind of fight or flight mode there, or, or was it afterwards that you processed it? I mean, I suppose when you look, I can't speak from any personal experience, so I'm just trying to understand when you're there, um, are you just living in the moment, or are you aware that it, it that it's possibly taking a toll on you? Um, you you do have some sort of awareness that it's taking a toll on you, but at the same time, everybody else around you is going through the same thing. So it's yep. not like you've got 
a gauge to go against. Yeah, sure. Because everybody's going through it at the same time. Mm. So that, that makes it really quite hard. And it's not until you get home that you realise how stressed you are, how little you are sleeping, how yep. much, you know, how small noise wakes you up during the night. So when you arrived um, back in Australian soil, I mean, do you, can you remember the feeling when you first set foot again on Australian soil? What was the emotion then? <laughs> um, the emotion was definitely one of happiness. Yeah. Um, the, I mean, what was really hard about that five and a half months is that we went over as part of um, the rapid response company yeah. at the time. So we... Um, the, the first and second battalion at the time, I think third battalion do it now as well. We used to rotate being the ready battalion, and during that, a company of you, which is around 100, um, around 100 soldiers, mm. um, you are the ready battalion, uh, the ready company, mm. and you could get a phone call at any time during that on call period, and you could be overseas within 24 hours. Yeah, yeah, and. You know, so to suddenly leave, you have to drop everything and go, um, yeah, and then not see home for five and a half months. It was bloody good to get back. I can imagine. <laughs> just, it just, really was. Just paint a picture for us when you're over there. I mean, you wake up in the morning, presumably on edge, probably you know, from the moment you wake up. Uh, what are you actually yeah. doing there? Did you feel like you were there to to keep the peace, to protect someone? Um, you know, did you feel like you you know, you guys were always under threat yourselves. You know, what sort of, what, what sort of mindset did you have when you were there on a day-to-day level? On a day-to-day level, okay. Uh, yeah, so normally during the night you would have, um, you'd rotate between sort of three different platoons um, and three different sections within that platoon, sort of your duties for the day. So you may be on guard duty where you're actually looking out for the base or wherever you're particularly Mm. um, supposed to be looking after or you'll be on patrol or you'll be the quick reaction force. Mm. Um, You know, so it it rotates and it keeps it kind of fresh in that way. Um, As far as what we were doing over there, when we first got over there, it was very clear. But as time went on, it got muddier and muddier as to whether we were a policing force or we were... A military force. Yeah, yeah. Um, which, from a private's point of view, because you don't have access to much information, um, it's really hard to figure out. Yeah. So, yeah, it was. You know, you'd go out and patrol, and uh, you know, it may be somebody is setting off fireworks, or there's riots happening, mm. or. Um, you know, we're acting on intel that's being received, so we're heading out to this area to have a look around. Um, I mean, when we when we arrived over there, I remember going out and we were in the um, in some of the sort of slum areas, and there was a riot and this massive fire started and it just decimated the entire place. Yeah. And there we are trying to find out who instigated the riot, arrest them, um, send them back to the, to the police and then see them back out in the street 24 hours later because their jails are that full they can't keep them yeah. in there. Yeah. So, yeah, it was it was one hell of an experience. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm sure. And, and unfortunately set you on a path, um, yeah, where you had some unresolved uh, mental health issues, and and you, and you hit the bottle, you know, to yeah, for want of a better yeah, phrase. And I, 
Mm. Exactly, and I hit it hard. You know, it was yeah, um, yeah. The, the dullingness of it was there, and similar to the post-traumatic stress and the way it's affecting you when you're overseas. When you get home, it's the same because everybody's going through the same thing again. Mm. So, although I had a fiance at the time, and you know, I had contact with civilians. I still spent most of my time around the guys I was serving with. So we were all going through the same issue. So it didn't seem to be that major. Yep. It didn't seem to be that big. Yep. And, you know, unfortunately for me, um, yeah, instead of seeking the professional help, which I really encourage anybody with mental health issues to, to reach out. There are so many great places that you can call and get in contact with and talk to. Um, you know, whether you look at getting professional help or even to open up to your mates. It's yep. Yeah, it's invaluable. such an important thing. It really is. I've I've lost way too many friends, um, both military and non, yep. um, you know, in my 36 years mm. to, yeah, it, it's, it is such a problem and it's something that... Yep. It's an absolute tragedy. It is. Yep. Uh, it really is. We're building up to what you um, <laughs> quite... <laughs> Quite comically, in a, in a dark sense at least, uh, been described as your alcohol-assisted gravity accident. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a beautiful yeah, phrase. Also... I feel like I can't say it, uh, you know, without putting you in the – because, you know, it, you could say it, I can't say it. This is like a an episode if you can't say that at the moment, isn't it? Um, but you've described oh, it as an alcohol-assisted <laughs> gravity accident. And, uh, look, I'll get you to describe that right after we take a break. Uh, ben, this is Inspiring Stories. Ben Aldridge is our special guest. Back with more soon. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Ben Aldridge is our special guest. Uh, ben, uh, we're building up to the moment where you, you tell us about your, as you put it, alcohol-assisted gravity accident. <laughs> You've been self-medicating uh, with alcohol in your time post-service uh, overseas. Um, just before we get to that, when you come back to Australia, are you back in Townsville and is there a, uh, a sudden exit from you know from time in the army there or, or, is, or is there a, a pretty good program where they essentially transition you out of it. How does that work? So the, the program itself is a very, evol it's rapidly evolving mm. um, as they get to understand more and more around the psychology of soldiers and how to best help. Um, so for me, the services were there. I yep. just chose not to access them. Sure. Um, I thought that I knew better than any professional uh, I thought, you know, that I could beat this thing. After all, I'm a man. I can, mm. I can do this. Um, so yeah, it, it was, it was there. Um, yeah. I chose not. I chose it. not to. Yeah. And, yeah. No, well, that's it. And the and I'm, the screening as well. I I fake, well, yeah, faked my way through it basically. Um, yeah. So yeah, the, you know, at the end of the day, I've got nobody blamed but myself. Yeah. You know, um, for for what happened, and so like you said, I started drinking and self medicating in order to um, continue to function in yep. society. Yeah. And my drinking was getting worse and worse, and 
the problem when this happens and you start to rely on substances to help you live, you develop blinkers and you don't see the effect it's having on the people around you. Yeah. You know, so um, my fiance and I, like my fiance at the time, and I were arguing a lot, yeah. uh, mostly about my drinking, and I couldn't see it was a problem. Mm. Uh, you know, and so got more and more selfish, and this sort of cascaded to the point where one night I went out in the town with the guys, um, and sorry, you're back in Perth at this point. Oh no! Sorry, this is in Townsville. So in I'm Townsville. still, yep. I'm still in the, yep, I'm yeah. still in the military. I'm still yep. in Townsville. Yep. Um, and yeah, so we're out in town there, and um, she's come out as well, and we had this big fight, and she's driven home. Um, not the first time it had happened, and I, after I'd calmed down and that, I decided it would be a good idea to walk home and to sober up and apologise, which. It was a common occurrence. You know, they, we were in this cycle of my drinking would piss her off, I would make it up to her, and then the cycle would begin again. So, uh, yeah, I was walking home, and on the way home, there's this um, this rather steep hill mm. that's been cut out to allow a major road to go through underneath. And so, it, you know, it forms this, this rather large cliff that overlooks the road, and from the top of this cliff, you can see out over Townsville. And it's a beautiful view from up there. You've got all the lights of Townsville, um, and you can see out to Laverack Barracks, and, you know, it's absolutely beautiful. And when you've got a full bladder up the top there, you can actually hit the cars that are driving on the road below. Mm. <laughs> Which is one of the dumb things that young men get up to we do like you, to be you wouldn't in some be really first, weird places then you wouldn't be the first as yeah as mindless as an act as it is you would not be the first you won't be the last mm. exactly exactly mm. so you know there i am doing that and um once again it, it isn't the first time i've done this um that cliff was on the way home from one of my regular haunts so but yeah just this night was a bit different um i lost my balance midstream and fell forward and um yeah, landed next to the footpath about uh, 10 metres down. That's a, that is a decent drop. I mean, 10 metres doesn't sound like a lot until you're up 10 metres looking down. That's a drop. It that, is. It's huge. Yeah. It's huge. I, I shouldn't be alive. Yeah. I really should not be alive. I shouldn't have survived that. And even, even if I had survived, I should have done a lot more damage than yeah. I did. Um, you know, basically the, the theory is that I was so drunk that I basically passed out um, and hit the ground completely relaxed, which is what saved my life. But on the flip side of the coin as well, if I hadn't been so drunk, I probably wouldn't have been up there. If you you don't mind me asking, I mean, what what sort of a state were you in when you were found and and how were you found? So, so, I mean, this is... (laughs) I, I have to laugh because Townsville is one of those places where you do occasionally see people passed out on the side of the road. Um, So I actually got discovered by a taxi driver. It was the third time he was driving past me when he stopped. 
Right. Because um, he was, he saw me for the third time, and he's like, "I better stop and check on this guy." Like, he's, he, he, there's no, he's no movement. In a pretty there. uncomfortable position. Yeah, yeah, yeah. there's no movement. There. Pretty uncomfortable position. <laughs> um, yeah. So he, he stopped and realised he was in trouble, and um, and rang an ambulance. And um, he still gets a carton from me for Christmas each year because, uh, yeah, you know, it was... There's a certain when, dark humour in you giving him beer too, I've got to say. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. But, you know, so... Uh, but at the end of the day, I was, yeah, found in a, in a condition where basically I had my fly undone, my junk hanging out, urine all over me, um, and couldn't feel or move anything from the armpits down. Wow. You know, it was, um, yeah, and from that point up until about three weeks later, I don't completely remember everything for yeah. a combination of different mm. um, factors, mm. you know, between the fact that I was blackout drunk anyway at the time, yeah. um, you know, so a lot of this is sort of in flashes and pieced together. Yeah. Um, you know, talking to my mates and thinking about, you know, sort of what I'd normally do each night and how they found me. Um, but then on top of that, when you go into ICU, um, so they flew me down to, to Brisbane to ICU because there's not, they didn't have what they needed to help me in Townsville, basically. Mm. Um, you're on a drug called Medazlam, which has got an am, um, amnesic effect. Sure. Um, and on top of that as well, I <laughs> when you rely on alcohol as much as I was at the time, when you go through an enforced dry out, you get withdrawal symptoms like any other drug. Yep. Yeah. Um, and it's something that I never knew that you could actually get from drying out. If you have some sort of some form of reliance on alcohol, when you stop it, you can go through hallucinations, the sweats, the jitters. Um, anxiety, like it is, it is full on. Mm. So here I am in ICU. I'm going through this, um, and on top of that, my PTSD is still in full, in full force. Mm. And you know, so I've got these nightmares, these fever dreams, these flashbacks, combined with the hallucinations of drying out from my time drinking. Um, I was an absolute mess. It was like Black Down combined with Alice in Wonderland. Um, you know, it was. It, it basically ended up being um, a horror story yeah. that Stephen King would be I, proud of. I don't want to see that movie, Ben. No, no. <laughs> no I mean, does. I. But and here's the thing: like, um, to my mind, these are proper memories. Yeah, they yeah. are there. Mm. That's. I never realised that hallucinations could be that powerful. Yep. Um, you know, as part of my military training, I had to stay up um, for around 72 hours straight um, as part of the final infantry training. We do this. It's, it's full on. It's gruelling. It is horrendous. And during that time, you start to slightly hallucinate. Yep. But this, this was just next level yep. ridiculous. Yep. Um, and normally they give you a lovely drug called haloperidol, which is a, um, a antipsychotic, um, can help you with your psychosis. Sure. Um, you know, which is brilliant and can really help get you through that stage. Unfortunately, I'm anaphylactic to haloperidol. So they gave it to me and then had to resuscitate me a couple of minutes later. Oh, wow. Just to add to your, <laughs> to your woes. Yeah, just to 
had to my wife. So, <laughs> look, but at the end of the day, like, this sounds absolutely horrendous. And this should have been, you know, I've, I've, I'm waking up and this doctor's telling me that I am a C5 quadriplegic, which I'll explain what that means soon. But um, by all accounts, um, common knowledge, this should be the worst thing that's ever happened to me. This should be the end of my life as I know it. This should be the most horrendous thing to ever happen, but it wasn't. Yeah, it was just the the start of something new. It was just, exactly, it was the start of something new. It was, um, I look back on it now, and it is the catalyst that I needed to get out of this spiral that I was in. Mm. Um, It was just that road bump that made me actually stop and go, wait a minute, this isn't right. And, you know, I mean, it's why I've named my company 30 Foot Drop after after this fall. It was 30 feet. And I survived it, you know. So, um, and I also talk, I do a, um, a, you know, as part of my professional speaking, I talk about um, my accidents and I talk about leadership and I call my story a, a good drop because it is. Yeah. Um, without it, I wouldn't be the person I am today. I wouldn't yeah. be doing what I'm doing. I wouldn't be yeah. living where I'm living. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's an incredible story, Ben, and we're only part way through, but I, I do want to get you to explain, um, you know, as as part of that turnaround and that shift in your thinking, you know, through all of the fog and the nightmare and the hallucinations, um, you know, when when your doctors in Brisbane there told you uh, what the future would be like for you. So uh, we'll get into that right after we take a break, Ben. This is Inspiring Stories. Ben Aldridge is our special guest. We'll be back with more very soon. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR. Brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. We are hearing the story of Ben Aldridge, uh, who's taking us back to when he was 22, uh, post uh, army life. He's just had a catastrophic fall 10 metres down a cliff in Townsville. Uh, ben, it sounds like a a horrific time in hospital in those early days, uh, given everything that you were you were battling. But just on the physical front, um, do you remember when the doctors came in and told you, you know, what lasting injuries you were going to have to, uh, to to live with? Yeah, look, that was uh, that was quite amazing. I mean, to start off with, when they told me how far I'd fallen, mm. um, I mean, at the end of the day. I really, I, I should have been using your sponsor's services. You know, I should not you have survived have that. No, exactly. And, and others yeah. others have needed those services after falling, uh, you know, a far shorter distance. Well, that's it. I mean, I know mm. uh, I'm friends with one lady who uh, managed to trip over her dog whilst c- cooking in the kitchen and is now quadriplegic. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so, yeah, at the end of the day, 10 metres is an impressive way of doing it. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, when I woke up um, and when I sobered up enough to be able to be coherent, which it took about three weeks, yeah. um, I, I remember the doctors 
telling me and basically smashing my life as I knew it yep. into little bitty pieces as only a blunt medical diagnosis can. Mm. You know, they um, they told me that I had dislocated, I'd smashed my sixth vertebrae down yep. um, and I dislocated my seventh vertebrae um, forwards. So between those two, I'd done a lot of damage to the spinal cord, which the spinal cord is the information superhighway for the body. Yep. Um, anything we want to do with our body, the message goes from the brain down through the spinal cord and out to the nerves and does it. And same with the um, information coming back, all your senses and that, that's all comes back by the spinal cord. So when you damage that, you lose control yep. of those parts of your body. Uh, you know, it's a very major thing. So, you know, suddenly they're, they're telling me how my spinal cord basically looks like a sausage that's popped open on the barbecue. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, it, and that's, although I haven't completely severed it, um, I've managed to crush it really, really well with yeah. that um, vertebrae that went forward. So, you know, I've got a couple of pieces of metal um, in the front of my neck to help stabilize. I've got three vertebrae fused together. And um, they took a whole load of bone out of my uh, right hip and put it um, to replace the what was basically powdered bone uh, of the sixth vertebrae. Wow. So, you know, but at the end of the day, that was the only thing I broke. I fell 10 metres and all I right? broke was my neck. So now, ankles, legs, arms, wrists, no, they were intact? Everything else was fine. Wow. Absolutely everything else is fine. Go figure. Yeah. Um, and although although my wife would like to sometimes uh, state otherwise <laughs> due to my <laughs> particular stubbornness, I didn't acquire a brain injury either. <laughs> you know, so... In, in a lot of ways, I was very, very fortunate. Yeah. Um, yep. You know, it just so happens that the part of my body that I broke mm. controls most of it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, they they told me I'm a I'm a C5 quadriplegic, which um, basically means so as a quadriplegic, and people and I I used to get this wrong as well. Yeah. A quadriplegic means that you have impaired mobility in all four limbs as a result of a spinal cord injury. Right. So it's not that you completely lose the ability to be able to move all four limbs. Mm -hmm. It's that your it's ability impaired. is impaired. So yeah, yeah so that's what, it. So what, 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 somebody, what can you do? What movement have you got? Okay, so I've got three muscle groups left. I've got uh, my forearms, my biceps, and my shoulders, right. and that's it. Right. So I can't move my fingers. Like I can't wiggle my fingers at all. Yep. Um, I can't straighten my arm against gravity because I don't have control of my triceps. Right. Um, I don't have control of my abdominal muscles, so all of my balance is done by my head and right. moving my head around. Um, and a lot of trial and error. A lot of trial and error. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> You know, and sensation-wise, it means that I can't feel anything at all from the armpits down, like yep. not even what they call proprioception, which is yep. that really deep nerve sensation that you have. Mm. Um, if I'm not looking at my legs, they don't exist right. at all. Okay. Like, I have no awareness of them at all, yep. um, which can be quite odd because, mm. you know, my wheelchair that I'm in, my, my backrest comes halfway up my back, so I can't actually feel it at all. And if I stop and think about it, I'm basically a floating head and shoulders because I can't feel the rest. 
it's it, it's an odd sensation. One that I tend not to dwell on very much because yeah. it still freaks me out. I yeah. mean, thirteen years on, and it still freaks me out. Yeah, I can, I, I can only imagine. <laughs> I, I can't do any more than that. I can only imagine it. Um, you know, yeah, it it just must be so strange. Um, how do you? Yeah. I mean, and how do you process all that? I mean, clearly you you come from a place where you were not processing, you know, the events of, uh, of, of five and a half months serving overseas, you've now got this other immense event in your life to start processing. How did you do that? Um, stubbornness. Yeah. Really. Um, it was between the, the discipline that I developed during my time in the military and mm. just the, the pure stubbornness of... of I'm not going to let this thing beat me. Yep, is very much what got me through. Yep. Um, you combine that with I've got a very close family um, yep. who have been immensely supportive, and the friends that I've made along the way. These are all the all of these factors sort of combined into helping me do it. Now it wasn't easy, um, and it took me about five years to get my head around everything and yep. to. Pull my head out of my yeah rear end yeah yeah <laughs> in, in a lot of ways you know it was there was a lot of things to deal with a lot of stuff to go through I mean the physicality of it is is one side yeah um, you know but at the end of the day there's adaptions and technology that can help you with the physical side of life yeah it's the mental side mm. you know um, I, I mean to to give you an anecdote. Um, People say, oh, it must suck being restricted to a wheelchair. But that's not true. My wheelchair is freedom. Mm. Without this thing, I'd be stuck in bed. Yeah. My wheelchair frees me mm. to get out. Yeah. Um, you know, and sort of coming to that point of view, having that change happen slowly over time and can be really hard. Yeah. Um, yeah and it doesn't just happen overnight. Yeah. Do you find as well, you know, people um, who perhaps haven't had first-hand experience uh, of a disability such as yours um, focus on the disability, the things that you may not be able to do and not the things that you can't do, that, that, that what you live with nowadays um, it defines you in a way that you uh, are not necessarily uncomfortable with, but you, you'd rather be defined by other things, put it that way. Yeah, yeah. Definitely, and and that's part of the reason behind Thirty Foot Drop and what yeah. I do now. Yeah. Because um, there's these assumptions within society and mm. uh, around disability. You know, these assumptions have been perpetrated by various movies, various tropes, yeah. uh, various novels, ideas, and that, and um, you know, policies uh, put forth by um, past governments. Yeah. That all sort of conspire to. Um, make disability seem like something really onerous and um, a drain almost and, and, on society. And really which limiting, yeah. Really limiting. Yeah. And all of these views are views that I had before I joined this club. Mm. You know, um, people with disability, we are the only minority that you can join against your will at any time. Mm. Yep. You know, it's... Um, yeah, and it, it's a shocker. I mean, 85% of people who identify as having a disability have acquired that disability as they've grown up, as they've as time's gone on. They yeah. weren't born with it. Yeah. So, 
Yeah, but I, I had this exact same views where, you know, I I knew nothing about disability. I yep. just assumed that they were all sad cases. If you're in a wheelchair, you must be uh, must have um, intellectual issues as well, or intellectual impairments. Um, you know, there's there must be there must be more to it. Yeah. So yeah, and I, I I do find it very frustrating at times yeah. when people automatically assume that because I'm in a chair, um, you know, that I can't work, or um, because I'm in a chair, my son, I must have had him before my accident, or yeah. my wife, we must yeah. have gotten married before my accident, because yeah. nobody would marry a cripple, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, yeah. and and these all get very highly frustrating over time. Oh, for I can sure. imagine. Well, you're certainly doing your bit to chip away at uh, at those assumptions, Ben. And I want to ask you more about uh, 30 Foot Drop right after we take a break. This is Inspiring Stories. Ben Aldridge is our guest. We'll be back with more soon. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR. Brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. My name is Tim McMillan. My special guest is Ben Aldridge. Ben, just before I ask you about 30 Foot Drop, uh, the company that you started, um, one thing is really clear in talking to you. You've got a fantastic sense of humour. Is that something that you, that's always been a feature of your personality growing up, or is it something that has taken on sort of new life and new purpose uh, in the in the years post the age of twenty two? Um, look, it's definitely developed and changed quite drastically. I mean, black humour in itself is such an important tool when it comes to recovering from a major incident like this. Um, and it's funny because I, I actually did a bit of research on, on black humour and what they yeah. found is the, the ability to be able to take something that may be threatening or scary and reframing it in such a way that doesn't mm. make it as scary mm. really helps you through. So yeah. in a lot of ways it developed a lot in yeah. that time. But um, yes, look, at, at the end of the day, if you can't laugh, then... <laughs> Yeah, you need to find something to laugh about. The days about. get a bit long, don't they? <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. yes, very much, very so, much. So tell us about Thirty Foot Drop. Obviously, the name inspired by the uh, the the distance that you fell um, back when you were age twenty two. That incident in Townsville. Um, again, your sense of humour shining through there. Um, but it's all about disability <laughs> inclusion, access, uh, advice. But tell us exactly what it is that, that Thirty Foot Drop actually does. Yeah, so 30 Foot Drop is all about educating the community, business and government about disability through open, honest conversations. Uh, as I pointed out before the break, pre my accident, I knew nothing about disability at all. Mm. Uh, we, you know, I was quite fortunate that, um, you know, I, well, I say quite, I was quite unfortunate really that I'd never really had much interaction at this part of the community. And as I started to get more and more frustrated about the assumptions in society around people assuming that um, I wouldn't want to go into that shop anyway, so why put a ramp in? Um, You know, I I started to get really frustrated and suddenly I had this light bulb moment where I went, wait a minute, I knew nothing about it when I was young. 
And I probably would never have learned anything about it if I hadn't broken my neck. Yeah. Why is this? And it's because there's not many people out there teaching it. Mm. There's not many people who are actually taking it out there and presenting it in a entertaining, humorous, engaging style. Yeah. And that's where 30 Foot Drop was born. And yep. that's what we do. It's open, honest conversation. Yep. We have fun. We get in there. I always say that there is no question off limits, um, you know, and regardless of who I'm speaking to, because I've spoken to from people around the age of 15 all the way up to people at executive levels in business um, and ministers as well. So open all those conversations where it's at, because if you don't yeah. ask the questions yeah. or if you feel like you can't ask the questions, you're never going to learn. Yeah. How do we go here in, in Perth and WA more generally in terms of uh, of access to, to shops, you know, to tourist attractions, hotels, whatever it may be? How do we go here? Obviously, there's still room to improve, but compared to other similar sorts of places, are we doing okay here? Yes, we are. We're, okay, we're doing, yeah, we're doing okay. A lot of the newer things that we're doing and making, so, for example, Optus Stadium yep. is as far as accessibility goes, it's brilliant. I love it. Yep. Um, once again, there is room for improvement, um, but it is very, uh, perfection is something you strive for mm. um, at all times, but is almost impossible to achieve. Sure. Um, you know, so a lot of the newer things that we're doing around WA are great. Unfortunately, a lot of the older infrastructure gets quite hard. Um, I mean, as a general rule, the city of Fremantle, um, going down through the cafe strip, a lot of the infrastructure there is a fair bit older, a lot harder to access from my point of view. Sure, yeah. Um, How do you find oh, living... Sorry, I, I, was, I, was, I know you now call beautiful southwest home. How is it down your way? Once again, constant cycle of improvement. Uh, so I'm very lucky in this area that the local governments um, around my area, so... Uh, your Shire of Capel, City of Bustle and City of Bunbury. They are very progressive. They have been very open to the idea and um, I've been quite involved with all, all of the shires down this way in, in getting things accessible as they are. So yeah. you look at somewhere like the Bustle and Foreshore and the development that's happened along there. Yeah, it's fantastic. Brilliant. Yeah. It is. Yeah. It's beautiful. Not only does it look good, it's really accessible. I love going yeah. there. Yeah. Same with a lot of what they're doing in Bunbury. So... You know, it's really exciting with yeah. what's happening because people's minds are starting to get opened yeah. to the idea that inclusion is good for business, yep. which it is. You know, at the end of the day, people like myself, we have money to spend. Yeah. If you don't make your place accessible, then we're not going to spend there. Mm. And in a lot of cases, when you look at businesses like, say, for example, a restaurant, okay, very rarely do I actually go out to a restaurant on my own, okay? I'll often be going out with a party, whether that's with my wife and child or friends and that. But the thing is, is that I may be the only person who needs the accessibility. Mm. But they're not going to go but without you, so, yeah. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, businesses are often missing out on more money than they think when it comes to this, yep. uh, which is one of the big messages that we have and a part of a series of webinars that we're running at the moment yep. um, is, is aimed at business owners and the opportunities they're missing out on around uh, disability employment, around access, inclusion and 
successful tourism. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if I can put it in crude terms, it's a it's a huge market that's waiting to be tapped, isn't it? Exactly, and it's a market that's always going to be there. Yeah. Yep. As well, you know, especially when we start looking at aging population demographics as well. Um, suddenly, you know, it is a, a population that is going to continue to to be there. And with the introduction of systems such as the NDIS, yep. people are more able to actually get out there and access these goods and services that in the past mm. they never would have been able to. Well, Ben, uh, all I can say is uh, all the best uh, with 30-foot drop and, and everything that it does. Uh, it has been uh, uh, thank you. a delight uh, getting to know you over the last hour or so, and thank you so much for sharing your story with us. No, my pleasure. Look, can I plug some email, uh, some websites and socials? Go for it. Okay, so if anybody's interested, uh, we're on all the major social media platforms under 30 Foot Drop, and we run a lot of uh, very fun content on there. So give us a follow, um, and hopefully we will see you soon. I'm sure you will. Thanks again, Ben. Appreciate it. Okay, thanks, Tim. You've been listening to Inspiring Stories here on 882 6PR. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. We look forward to you joining us again next time as we unearth another WA Inspiring Sorry about the noise. My neighbour's sanding his deck. My motto, don't work on your deck, play on it. Life's good with a Trex deck. Low maintenance with a 25-year residential warranty. Trex, the world's number one decking brand.